Some rich language in those hymns. I hope that we treasure them and will put them to our heart and that we will truly draw near to the Lord this morning as we seek to draw near to the cross as we prepare our heart to remember the Lord in the breaking of bread soon. We're going to turn to Galatians chapter 6. Our message will be from verses 11 to 14. Galatians 6 verse 11 to 14. Verse 11. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law Yet, they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. In the 14th verse, which will be spoken on separately, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. When you write, do you usually print or do you use cursive? Print? How many are printers that always print? Ah, more than I thought. Is that because you're bad handwriters? Maybe. You know, when you sign certain documents, they always would say signature, and then they would say print only So our signatures are meaningful and how we write them are meaningful. Paul, it's hard to see the connection uh, in the context. As as you heard last week, all those various exhortations that our five brothers gave uh, about uh, all varieties of different things, bearing one another's burdens and bearing your own burden and sowing not to the flesh but to the Spirit and communicating unto them that teach good things and to uh, he that uh, uh, be not uh, be not weary in well-doing for in due season you shall reap if you faint not and let us do good unto all men, uh, especially those who are of the household of faith. There, there are five exhortations that were preached on last week. So the next verse Paul says, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. So there's a couple of things to take notice of. He has large letters that he's the writer of and he says that he did it with his own hand. Would the implication be that he wrote other, that other things were written in his name that didn't have his approval? You know, in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, he does refer to a rumor that had been spread abroad that the Lord had already come, um, saying that the day of the Lord has come. And he says, that's false. It hasn't been told you that. If anyone has written that to you, it's not with my approval. It's not with my handwriting. And what makes Paul's handwriting or Paul's approval important? Well, we know from other scriptures that Paul, along with other New Testament writers, give us the affirmation that their writings were inspired 
by the Holy Spirit of God, which makes those words unique and sacred and holy and valuable as compared to just writings of writers who have self-inspiration. These writers were Holy Spirit inspired. They were breathed in, the words were breathed in by the Spirit of God and came out in the writings. Now, one of the first courses that I took when I went to college and was had to select various courses, and one of my first courses had to do with inspiration of the Scriptures. I don't know if you ever thought much about how were the Scriptures actually inspired? Did, did God drop a, a letter down for them to copy? Did God audibly shout down from above like He spoke to Moses and other people in the Bible with an audible voice? And Paul or Peter or whoever was the writer was recording what was said by God? Or were they just simply in a contemplative state, Spirit giving them personal motivations and personal impressions that caused them to write words that would be so powerful and useful that they would endure forever. So like when Jesus says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. You know, we have, and it's, it, it's, it's misleading if you don't understand your Bible, those that editions of the Bible that have the red letter editions could give someone the impression that the, in those red letters, red letter words are words that Jesus spoke. And it's a good way to locate them if you're interested in finding all that Jesus said. Brother Mark Fuller years ago gave me a book called, it's, it's all only Jesus' sayings in it. It contains just Jesus' sayings, which was super interesting because I think sometimes we uh, we fail sometimes to recognize that, wow, Jesus actually said that. That's important. Of course it's important. But also what Paul and Peter and John and others wrote is equally important because they were inspired by the Holy Spirit so that what we read, we can come, come away with believing, thus saith the Lord. So now why does Paul indicate at this point that he is writing this with his own hand. And one of the clues of that would be the fact that he used large letters. You know, big print. Um, Possibly there's various theories about why Paul would state that he wrote in large letters. First of all, Paul's letters were primarily written by, I hope I can pronounce the word, Amanuensis. Is that right, Julie? Amanuensis? I think I got the right uh, pronunciation, which is somebody who receives dictation like a secretary from a president who's writing down the oral words that the, the one who's dictating is stating things to the one who's recording the dictation. So Paul's letters, for the most part, and I'm going to show you some verses to... Uh, substantiate this if we can get him up on the screen here Listen, look what he says in 2 Thessalonians 3.17 I Paul write this greeting in my own hand notice that in my own hand which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters this is how I write there were points in Paul's letters where his actual handwriting was incorporated into the text 
for, so to speak, a finalization or an assurance that it was from him and not from some imposter. Same thing here in 1 Corinthians 16, 21. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Colossians 4, 18. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. So the one who was receiving Paul's dictation recorded the words that the Holy Spirit gave Paul to say that were recorded. And then with his own hand, he adds his final you could say salutation or greeting at the close of these epistles, which was probably commonly done in other epistles as well. We probably never thought too much about the fact that Paul was actually dictating his words to a writer who was recording what was being said. So Paul is telling the Galatians, that he's writing with these large letters, and were they large? Maybe because he had a problem with his eyesight. He could have been wounded and injured in his eye as possibly some think that when he was stoned that he had, like George Whitfield was, was, was beaten himself and he had, he had scars on his body uh, for the rest of his life. Paul may have had an impairment from that. Or it could have been some other just bad eyesight in general. Or he didn't have good handwriting skills. He wasn't scribal in his talented uh, g- uh, gifts that he may have had. And therefore he would use a recorder to write them. But he wants them to know that these large letters is a proof to you that I am behind all that is being said. Commentators vary on what is Paul referring to here when he says, as I write to you. What did he write to them that needed to be highlighted with him saying these large letters. What were the large letters? Some think the whole epistle was written by Paul and all words were written in large letters. Or the other alternative, which may be a a better choice, is that what you heard last week in in those passages from probably verse 1 down to verse 10, Paul's exhortations to the Galatians after his doctrinal thesis that he gives to his audience of the Galatians, he now has these personal exhortations that he is sort of confirming that they are from him by the fact that he wrote in his own script. Now we don't, and you probably do or do not know this, but we do not have any of the original autographs of any written part of the Bible. Moses, we don't know how how Moses wrote, we don't have the actual handwritten copies that Timothy, uh, of Timothy or of any of the uh, uh, writers of the Old or the New Testament. So we're dependent on copies of the originals. The originals are called the autographs. The ones that succeed that are called manuscripts of the autographs, and that's what we have passed down to us. And just for your information, the Bible has been preserved far better than any other ancient liter- literature in human history. It's exceptionally done, amazingly preserved, and that would take a whole class to discuss with you the subject of textual criticism, how we got our Bible, and maybe we'll talk about it sometime so that we can have a better understanding of the origins of our Bible and where it came from and how it's actually been transmitted. 
and why do we have different translations and so on and so forth. It can get complicated, but it's good information, I think, for all of us. Because when you're talking to certain people, the Muslims, for instance, they believe that their Quran is the actual copy of what Muhammad himself wrote. That is false, and it can be proven to be false. And they claim that, well, you Christians with your Bible, you have multiple uh, uh, additions and multiple copies and manuscripts and so on. Yes, that's how it's been preserved through the centuries. Well, anyway, I just wanted you to be reminded that when Paul's talking about how important it is for them to know that he had written this with his own hand, there are other examples where also he has written. He doesn't mention that he writes in large letters. Why he writes here in large letters is hard to say because Galatians is one of the earlier epistles. Some of these... Well, these are also fairly early too, basically in the same time frame. We don't know why Paul would write in large letters, and I don't think it's that important anyway. At least the Scriptures haven't given us a good reason to know that, but at least what it does want us to know is that Paul is giving his affirmation with his own handwriting. Now let's move on to verse 12. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. You know, this these ancient techniques, you could say, and, and uh, strategies of their false teachers is very much like the way it's done in the cults as well the James Joneses and the David Koreshes and so on. They were very charismatic people. They were so uh, uh, able to convince their audiences that their audience were just mesmerized by the rhetoric, by the dynamic presentations that were given and with the assurance and authority that, that the speaker would give to the audience. It was almost like they felt like they were listening to God and that they had no other choice but to obey what was being said or else they would be guilty and they could be harmed and they could be hurt or they could be away and disobedient to God. They want to impress people by means of the flesh. What does that mean, the flesh? Well, we had in chapter 5 there about the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. That's not the flesh that's referred to here. Flesh is simply this flesh because we're talking about them wanting to have the Galatians circumcised, which means that the Galatians that were primarily the audience that Paul was writing to had to be Gentiles because all the Jews would have been circumcised. So it wouldn't have been necessary for false Judaizing teachers to come among the Galatians and force them into circumcision when they were already circumcised. That was commonplace for a Jew. He has other ways of approaching them when he says circumcision doesn't avail you or uncircumcision doesn't avail you, but a new creation. And we'll talk about that one at a later time. That's what really avails you. But the false teacher wanted to give them these brand marks that gave them this sort of like inward peace and assurance that this is acceptable to God. What would be a parallel to that, I think, in our day, would be baptism. Some people seem to think, I've asked different people different times, probably you have as well, so when did you get saved? How'd you get saved? And lots of people have told me, I was baptized on such and such a date. I didn't ask when you were baptized. 
I'm asking you, when were you born again? When were you regenerated? When were you saved? You could have been baptized the next week. You could have been baptized five years later. Your baptism didn't add to your conversion. Your conversion was already already solid. Your name's written in heaven. Your sins are forgiven. You have a right standing with God. Baptism doesn't add anything to the righteousness of Christ that's already been imputed to you. But some people think that baptism is a necessity. I had a fellow that insisted that he wanted to be baptized, and when I asked him about his conversion experience, it was less than shallow. Had to say, I'm sorry, but at this time I can't as a minister of the gospel with assurance put you under the waters of baptism as one that has died and been buried and risen together with Christ because you haven't given a good, credible testimony about what you've experienced with the Lord and how the Holy Spirit has worked in your life, convicting you of your sins and bringing you to the knowledge of Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. So baptism and circumcision, there is this sort of outward boasting. Oh, and I've even heard pastors boast about how many got baptized. I baptized 23 last Sunday night in the service, or I baptized 12 this summer, or whatever the numbers may be. It's like they're putting notches in their belt. Rather than giving all the glory to the Lord, and certainly baptism is important. I'm not trying to under undermine that in any way. Baptism is important, Jesus said, just like the Lord's Supper is important. How Christians can go for a year or six months or months without remembering the Lord baffles me. How can they call themselves believers and they're not remembering Christ in the breaking of bread? That's critical. That's, I mean, we're not, how should I put it? It's not a legalistic command, but it's His desire for us and that's why we obey Him in the breaking of the bread. They want to impress people by means of the flesh and they're trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. You know, we're boasting, and Paul's going to say this, that he wasn't boasting in anything that he did, but his boasting was in the cross. And those who would boast in the cross at that time, those teachers would, if they believed that, they would have to be persecuted. By who? by their family members, by their friends, by their community, by the neighborhood, by their religious affiliations. Because to preach the cross versus circumcision is a world of difference. They were once preaching circumcision, thinking this is what's going to make you right with God. And they're doing it. Let's look at a couple of scriptures here. Um, Elsewhere, this is from Deuteronomy 36, just so that we understand what circumcision is. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love Him. You can't love Him unless you're circumcised. In where the heart, not in the flesh. Who does the circumcising? God does it. And you're the recipient of it. Your heart is changed. So what? So that you may love Him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. What did Jesus say the greatest commandment is? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Who can do that? No one unless they are circumcised on the inward parts 
unless they've been born again, not on the outward parts. These are the teachers in Galatians 4. Those people are zealous to win you over. The poor Galatians were subject to these zealots, but for no good. They're zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us, who's us, the apostles, Paul and his colleagues that were sent by the Lord and were preaching the truth so that you may have zeal for them. That's a goal of a false teacher is to what it says in Acts. Notice this. Their goal is this. I know that after I leave, Paul's saying, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own selves shall men arise speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after themselves. After themselves, they have a zeal for them. They're using the Galatians so that they can build up their own egos. Watch it who you submit yourself to and who you subject yourself to. Be sure you're not in any kind of a... um, uh, What's the word that I'm trying to use? Um, uh, When you talk about being in bondage to somebody, help me. What is it? No, well, that part part of it, when you're... um, what is it? Uh, that, that's a good adjective for it. But I'm thinking of a specific phrase. It just escaped my mind. Huh? No, that's true too. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good try. Um, it, it's more of a, huh? Uh, codependency, that's the word. Codependent is the word I'm looking for. Did somebody say that? If I missed it, it's my hearing. But codependent. Be sure you're not co-depending on somebody for your relationship with Christ. If anybody could be co-depending, if you want to co-depend on anybody, be sure it's somebody, and I don't even want to use that word, somebody who's preaching Christ, who's teaching you about Jesus, who is preaching and teaching in ways that are leading you and not driving you. That's what the cult leaders would do. That's what the false teachers would do. They would push you. They would put guilt upon you. Scripture says righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. The Bible says the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. I don't want to listen to a teacher that's pounding the pulpit and beating on me every week or anyone that's harassing me in that way. If I have the Spirit of God, I can hear the voice of the Good Shepherd who will lead me and may use a brother or a sister by their examples, by their words, by their life that's going to motivate me to want to follow them. Now the last verse. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law. This is the irony of it. Those who are pushing circumcision as being an essence of the law keeping, they themselves were not even law keepers. The only real true law keepers, and I use law in a more of a generic way, the end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience. Um, scripture talks about that, that we, are, we fulfill the righteousness of the law because of the life that we have of the Spirit of God within us that generates that kind of a, of a lifestyle. And this will be the last verse that we're going to be speaking about in a minute. Not even, verse 13, not even those who are circumcised keep the law that you want, yet they want you to be circumcised that you, that they may boast. 
about your circumcision in the flesh. Be careful, brothers and sisters. You know, that, that's, that's sort of the challenge of a preacher is to try to take an ancient text written in the first century or centuries even before that and say, the Bible says the word of the Lord endures forever. So what was written yesterday is written for today and how words 2,000 years ago can have application for us. The scripture tells us that the word of the Lord endures forever and that it does have application. A preacher's job is to say, how do these verses relate to you and I in the 21st century? What is God telling What did he tell that generation and what is he telling us from that generation to our generation to me in this time period? The Bible is not irrelevant. It's absolutely relevant for all of us. You can read the Bible. First, get the original intent of the author and then secondly, ask yourself, how does this text apply to me in my life? I would say that this text is telling us that we need to be dependent on the Lord by the circumcision that He has created in our hearts and that's what makes us right with God. I will circumcise their heart. May the Lord bless His word as our brother will continue on the 14th verse. And then we'll break bread. Fill me, fill me with your spirit, O oh God. I just ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Before I get to the main verse there, I'd like to read a few brief passages, if I might, just to sort of set the, the theme. Oh, I must say first, I, I, last week, last Sunday, I was, as I'm sure many, were tremendously blessed by this individual and the call to worship, the scriptures that were read were refreshing to me to hear. Now, I I don't want to give you the impression I believe our Lord, as it says, that they were astonished at his doctrine. He spake as one that had authority. Authority. And not as the scribes. 
when officers returned to the Sanhedrin and they said, where is he? They responded, never. Not every now and then. Not every time to time. Not every blue moon. Never, never man spake like this man. With conviction, I believe the Lord spoke with conviction. I really believe that with every fiber of my being. And I'm not saying that any one has to be like me or someone else that gets up. God's given you the way, the style that the Lord, the gift the Lord has given you, I believe. But I'm not, we're not trying to impersonate Charlton Heston. Well, for those that know Alexander Scorby, we're not trying to win Academy Awards. But I wanna, I wanna speak the word, read the word as if I believe what I'm reading. This is the word of God. This isn't a Time magazine. This isn't your newspaper. This is God's holy word. And I just, um, I, I am, I am just so, I wish the individual was here today because what was read last week was so powerful to me and I just wanted to share that with you is all. But the theme right there, I think by now it's kind of been spoken today, the cross, and that's why we're here, is the cross. The cross. And, and, and Paul says how the preaching of the cross to them that perish is what? Foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God, the dynamite of God unto salvation. Paul goes on to say, Brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or wisdom declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ in him crucified. Nothing among you save Jesus Christ in him crucified. Paul goes on to say, I am the least of the apostles. He also called himself the chief of sinners. Now good news for some out there perhaps today. God, I want you to listen, God has already, it's a fact, he's already saved the chief. Only the warriors are left. He saved the chief of sinners. He can save you. You're not past the grace of God. But Paul says that he was not the least of the apostles. That he was, uh, he, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than them all. He says in, he says in Philippians that he counted, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. He had quite the resume, the apostle did. If anybody could boast, if anybody could brag, if anybody could show his credentials, it was the apostle. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, right down the list, everything Paul accomplished and did. But he says here, I count it but dung. I count it loss. And after going through the book of Galatians like we have, Paul reaches this Call it what you will. I like to refer to it as this, this holy indignation. God forbid. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross. Everything that man had done, he comes out as frustrated as he was with the Galatians and all that they did turning back to the circumcision and the flesh and all this, Paul comes out to say, God forbid that I should glory in the cross. And today, today we have this opportunity to come before the cross. Brothers and sisters, in glory, what what, what are we glorying in? What do you glory in? As the brother said, this is, this is probably the highest privilege and blessing we have on earth is the Lord's Supper. I can't think of anything higher in our Lord who said, do this in remembrance of me. There wasn't a set of rules. There wasn't a mountains to climb. Do this in remembrance of me. How simple. And isn't that the gospel? Isn't that what the cross? The cross is all about the God. The God everything is from the cross, proceeds from the cross. We can look back now to the cross. As, and those that look forward to the cross, it's the center of two eternities. And those words of the Lord that I just love, where he draws his disciples aside and says how many Many kings and prophets desire to see the things that you see and have not. And to hear the things that you hear and have not. We're in, we're truly in a privileged place. We really are. And we're here today to give glory. What, what was the, what was Paul's glory in the cross? What was the main, the main thing I believe, in a nutshell, was that God, the offended one, should give up his only begotten son. That in order that justice might not be injured. At the same time, his mercy might have full sweep. 
that the only begotten should die, that the offending ones might live. You realize that? The cross. Who drew, where did this plan come from? The cross. Imagine. The cross. The Well, honey, could you bring me my case? Ann, could you bring me my Bible case? I forgot, I forgot something out of it. Thank you, dear. I'll share this to give it some. We might truly ask this question with whom? took he counsel. Who instructed him when he planned the great architecture of the Temple of Mercy? With whom took he counsel when he digged the deeps of love that out of them might well up springs of salvation? Who aided him? None. None. He himself alone did it. In fact, if angels had then been in existence, they could not have assisted God, for I can well suppose that if a solemn conclave of those spirits had been held, if God had put to them this question, man will rebel, I declare I will punish my justice, inflexible and severe demands that I should do so. But yet, I intend to have mercy. If he had put that question to the celestial squadrons of mighty ones, how can these things be? How can justice have its demands fulfilled? And how can mercy reign? The angels would have sat in silence until now. They could not have dictated the plan. It would have surpassed angelic intelligence to have convinced, conceived the way whereby righteousness and peace should meet together and judgment and mercy should kiss each other. Substitution. Jesus just didn't die on the cross to, as a martyr or to prove a point. He was a legitimate substitution. He bore the sins of his people on the cross. And we have this privilege today to come and remember him at the cross. You know, the scriptures say that his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men do you realize that when he was on that cross, he didn't resemble a human being? Do you realize that? I, I, am, I am amazed that after the beatings the previous night, the multiple beatings, the scourging, which more men died under scourging than they never made it to the cross. You realize that more men died from the whippings 
than actually made it to the cross. And after the crown of thorns that was placed upon his head and beaten into his brow, after being his, his you can't, I can't imagine his face, his face, woe is me, his face. And then to be led out to carry his own cross. I don't know about you. I don't understand how it was physically possible for this man to endure that physical suffering and pain. How was it possible? Did you ever think about Jesus was no, I think he was a rugged individual, if I could so speak reverently, to go through what he went through, gladly enduring the cross and despising the shame. It was shameful. And like that verse says right there, that I should glory save in the cross of Our, 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 not my, our Lord Jesus Christ. Not the cross of Jesus. Not the cross of Christ. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I can feel it rising up in the apostle. This is powerful stuff. This is amazing. And I I believe in my heart of hearts that as much as we can reap all the eternal benefits that we have from the cross, beyond comprehension, we've been blessed with all, not most, not some, all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. All blessed abundantly above all that we can. We don't realize the position we are in Christ. We really don't realize what dwells in us, that his nature dwells in us. And I believe that as much as that is just wonderful to meditate and meditate on the cross, the benefits we draw from it, that we can come to Calvary and, and, and just witness Christ on the cross, you know, as as beautiful as the pictures were in types in the Old Testament. This wasn't the ram caught by his horns in the thickets. This was the Son of God hanging on the cross. This wasn't the brass serpent Moses built, although Christ alluded to that and said, as Moses lifted up the... This was the Son of God, God's only begotten Son, what more could he give? What more could he have given? Not Michael or Gabriel or any of the powerful. It was God's son who could have devised such a plan as this. And yet, first and foremost, God was glorified infinitely. God himself, first and foremost, In the work of the cross. It says, I, I, I love how this 
writer puts it. There is that in Jesus which only God could appreciate. True, every believing heart can draw nigh to his matchless person and more than satisfy its deepest and most intense longings. Oh, isn't that so true? Still, after all God's redeemed have drunk to the utmost of their capacity, after angels have gazed on the peerless glories of the man Christ Jesus as earnestly as their vision is capable of, after all, there will be that in him which God alone can fathom and enjoy. He offered himself as a sacrifice, as a sweet-smelling savor. Do we begin to begin to imagine how much glory God received as God was punishing his son on that cross for your sins. Your sins. As God was punishing his son, as he had turned his face from him, why hast thou forsaken me? Do you realize how much glory God was getting at that? As all heaven was silent, witnessing this, this one before angels who's, who would delight at the poor full vials of glory before his feet. This one is hanging on a cross and God is punishing him. Punishing and not letting up. The sun refused to shine on its creator. And it, the brother read the centurion, truly, this was a righteous man. And, and those, those words, of those victorious words from the cross, it is finished. It is finished. What more can be done? It's a great masterpiece. Would any of us dare go up to a Rembrandt or a Michelangelo and take a, take a, a brush and add a few... You've ruined it. You've ruined it. It is finished. God is infinitely glorified. How do we know? How do we know? He raised him from the dead. He raised him from the dead and sat him at his own right hand. The majesty on high. There sits the man, Christ Jesus, at the right hand of God. Completely surrounded by, by worshiping and adoring saints that have gone before us. What a savior we have. What a savior we have. This, and we have this privilege how can we come to the cross cold? How can we come indifferent? How can we come in 
Oh, oh, I forgot it was the Lord's Supper day. Oh, well, how can we be, take it for granted? Jesus of Nazareth is passing through Southbridge today. This might be the last time for some of you. It's very well could be, you might never hear. There are many people in hell as we speak that would love to sit down in a meeting like this just one more time. Once, to hear these words. May it impress our hearts. The simplicity of the cross. It's a simplicity. I'm glad it was simple. I'm glad that I could understand. You know, I think I had a, when I, when I graduated high school, I couldn't read my diploma. I believe I had a sixth grade reading level, if that. But the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel, look. Just look. Look to that cross. Look. You don't even have to move a muscle. Look and live. Live. Come to him. Come to him as you are and view him on the cross. I wish I could go on how the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. I think this effect has it would have upon us as it did on Paul. The world is not going to like us anymore. They're not going to love us. And we should not look for their approval. You know, Lot's, when Lot was being taken out of the city, he, he was pleading with his son-in-laws, come, come, God is going to, and you know what? They laughed, they laughed him. They, they looked at him as one that mocked. They're never going to take you serious again if you try to go back. And in closing, if you keep to the cross of Christ, you must expect to have this for your portion. The world will be crucified to you, and you will be crucified to the world. You will get the cold shoulder. Old friends will become open foes. They will begin to hate you more than they love you before. At home, your foes will be the men and women of your own household. Isn't that so true? You will hardly be able to sing, do anything right. When you join in their revels, you were a fine fellow. When you would drink and sing a lascivious song, you were a Jolly good fellow, but now they rate you as a fool. They tell all you are is is a hypocrite. They slanderously blacken your character. Let their dislike be a badge to your dis- discipleship and say, Now also the world is crucified to me, and I unto the world. Whatever the world says against me for Christ's sake is the babbling of doomed malefactors. I could go on, but... As the hymn writer said, take the world, but give me Jesus. And the more we look into his face, the things of earth hopefully should and will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's scary up there, brother. Big guy.
Let's draw near to the cross, brothers and sisters, as we've come together now to do what's the most important thing and the most precious thing, that's to remember the Lord. I'm going to ask Brother Todd if he would open us up with an open season of praise and anyone else that would like to uh, participate.